It's 1999. Boys see dead people. I see London. I see France. And I see Donnie Wahlberg's underpants. The movie, The Sixth Sense. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And today we'll be talking about The Sixth Sense. But before we get into that, Amy, let's talk about the reactions that people have been having to the last episode, Singing in the Rain. They all hated this movie. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they all worshipped this movie. They loved this movie. It was a big-ass joy bomb. I know. And I feel uh, vindicated because when I said to you that a lot of my um, – Recognition of these classic films comes from the MGM Studios Walt Disney ride, the great movie ride. Uh, many people agreed that they also experienced these movies for the first time on the great movie ride. I think it's now like Mickey's train ride. There's no movies in there anymore. So sadly, you can't experience it uh, when we go take our oh, giant Orlando trip. Way to kick me when I'm down, man. Just because <laughs> I've never been to Florida. <laughs> well, so people who watch Singing in the Rain for the first time were super happy. And some of them, like Susan Hooks, a.k.a. at Taco Taco, she thought Gene Kelly was just smoking. And I do not disagree, Susan Hooks. No, I mean, look, Gene Kelly is an attractive guy. I feel like not only is he hot, but he knows how to dance. He should be getting ladies nonstop. Or dudes, whatever he wants. Whatever he wants. I think what you were saying is exactly what was on the mind of at Baron Saber, who I believe at Baron Saber, you crossed a line. You said you thought Good Morning was a song about a threesome. <sighs> Gene Kelly's ghost, man, he is sadly shaking his head at you, no, Baron Saber. No, I think it was a way to get in past the censor with that big threesome song. You know, Be a Clown is about, uh, well, I don't even want to get into what it's about, but it really uh, what, is. Tell, tell us, Paul. About f- <laughs> No, it's not. <laughs> We can't say that on the show. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Grudlin on the Earwolf Forum uh, wanted to back me up, and I, I always appreciate that. Thank you, Grudlin. He said that um, Broadway melody doesn't really fit into Singing in the Rain. It's a great sequence, but it doesn't make any sense in the movie at all. And every time I watch Singing in the Rain, I always forget it's there until the end. But I think of every other scene as more appropriate to Singing in the Rain. And I recently was on an airplane this weekend, and I watched a little bit of American in Paris, and I was like, oh, it's so clearly from this movie. They were just kind of duplicating something that worked over there and bringing it over here. All right, Paul. So before we get deep into The Sixth Sense, last week we asked people to call in and tell us what dead celebrity they would like to talk to if they could see and hear and ask dead people anything they wanted. So here's what they said. I would talk to Vincent Price about cooking poetry and being a villain in Batman. For me, I'd want to talk to Roy Scheider because um, I think he's a very fascinating person, and he's in one of my favorite movies of all time, All That Jazz. I would love to talk to him and ask him what it was like working with Bob Fosse. It's actually kind of fitting that Singing in the Rain just happened because it's totally going to be Gene Kelly. I think I would have to like be a little selfish and ask him for tap lessons. I would go with Gene Wilder. I would just, like, want to do, like, lines from Blazing Saddles with him, I guess. The person I'd like to talk to the most is Betty Davis. I want to hear all the dish. I mean, all the dirt. Uh, Joan Fontaine, uh, Joan Crawford. I want to hear it all. Well, Paul, what about you? Hmm. I don't know. You know, I feel like 
whenever I idolize anybody, I don't want to meet them. So I think it's a, a tricky one. Um, I will say, just to keep it recent, I was a huge fan of Neil Simon. So I, I I'll keep him alive for a couple more days. Aww. I got asked that question once for like an awards uh, brochure thing. Yeah. I wrote down Busby Berkeley because right. I love him and I'm very fascinated and curious about him. And then I was like, what did I write down the last time I had to answer this question for the same brochure? And it was also Busby Berkeley. And I had this moment of, Nicholson, you do not change throughout the ages. And I was weirdly proud of myself. See, I like that about you. Consistency. And now, Amy, let's get into our feature presentation. All right, Amy, let's get into it. Number 89 on the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time. The Sixth Sense, which is a film starring Haley Joel Osment, Bruce Willis, Tony Collette, and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. IMDb describes this movie as, A boy who communicates with spirits seeks the help of a disheartened child psychologist. A disheartened child psychologist. Yeah. A heart-unpumping child psychologist. Wait, don't give any spoilers. <laughs> uh, I mean, even that IMDb line is a spoiler because you don't realize he talks to dead people until the exact midpoint of the film. Yeah, it's a secret that he keeps to himself. I have to say that this, more than probably any other film, is the most kind of pop-culturally spoken about film that we've done so far. You know, it's like, I see dead people, the twist ending. Like, I think a lot of people would know what The Sixth Sense is about, even without having seen The Sixth Sense. Yeah, do you think its twist ending is more or less famous than The Crying Game? I think it's more famous than The Crying Game because the movie is more commercially viable than The Crying Game. Like, I think people know The Crying Game, but as... We've gotten further and further away from The Crying Game. I feel like you don't hear The Crying Game that much. I think Sixth Sense will remain as the quintessential twist. So I will say that in watching it again, and I've seen this movie a handful of times, I really was like, can I enjoy this movie knowing the twist going into it? And I have to say, not only did I enjoy it, I think it's really artfully done, and I found myself fully engaged Multiple times, even though I knew the machination of the movie or the big, you know, central thesis of it. And I think that's a sign of a good movie is it's not spoiled for you once you know the big turn. I agree. It's really well crafted. You know, I sometimes have issues with twist ending movies because Mm -hmm. they don't hold up. Like as soon as you know that twist, you're like, I don't get it. You go all the way back through. You feel like it's sloppy here. Is it super clear? And M. Night Shyamalan seems like. I mean, he did, like, what, 10 drafts of the script? Yeah. He seems like he was going to make an airtight movie. You cannot make fun of this. I'm going to make it flawless. What I guess we'll really get into when we start talking about it is it's not just the script. It's the way that he structures the camera angles. It's the way that he deals with the sound. And it's also the way that he deals with audience expectation and the idea of, I know what you're probably thinking, and I'm just going to let you lean into that while I do my little magic trick over here. Well, that's what I thought was so interesting in watching it. I was like, oh, he is using the conventions of filmmaking or movie making to hide the fact that our main character, Bruce Willis, is dead the entire time. We're making the connective tissue. When you watch it the first time, you realize, oh, well, what happened after that scene? He must have gone inside the house after he saw the boyfriend outside. But no, it just fades away. And we, as the audience, are kind of left to be like, well, what what did happen? We don't, you forget about it. It just kind of moves on. That's true. This idea that we, as the audience, are always connecting these dots. Mm-hmm. That we're always putting it together. And then when you rewatch it, knowing the dots, you see how much he's screwing with you. I mean, the very first image that we see 
in this in a sixth sense after this like strange late nineties font, you know, where all yeah. the letters pull apart. I was watching and thinking it looked like when you have a grilled cheese in a commercial and you're like, look at my grilled cheese. <laughs> look how it stretches. <laughs> the very first thing you see after that is a light bulb. I was gonna talk on. about this, yes. This image of an idea, a reveal, you know, seeing the shadows in the room. I mean, a light bulb is our shorthand for aha. Yeah, and the first scene takes place in the basement, which is where our character is exiled to from most of the film, and you don't think anything of it, but it's building out this movie so slowly. And I think, again, this movie is reduced to the reveal, and it's really so much more than it. I actually think this movie is very akin or shares DNA with like a Hitchcock film in a way. It's very patient, and it's very dialogue-based, and I think it uh, it does a great job of like, Tricking the audience. Are you, do you think it's ridiculous for me to compare it to Hitchcock? Well, I was laughing because I was thinking if you told M. Night Shyamalan that this film was like Hitchcock, he would have said yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely yeah. it was. Definitely it was. I mean, this is a guy who makes this film. It's his third film. Right. He's 29. He turns 29. His birthday is the day The Sixth Sense comes out. Which is the best birthday gift of all time. <laughs> I mean, this movie is a, a cultural phenomenon. Exactly. And within a year or two, he's on the cover of Time magazine being called the next Spielberg. Because, I mean, this the story of this movie getting made is crazy. It kind of feels like something that could only happen in the late 90s when oh, yeah. the economy was doing great and we had a bunch of money to burn. Yeah. That this kid could have two movies that kind of that failed. A movie with like Rosie O'Donnell's a nun, right? Yeah. The Rosie O'Donnell's a nun produced by Harvey Weinstein, fights with Harvey Weinstein all the time, gets the movie ripped away. While he's in the editing room for that Harvey Weinstein nightmare, he turns to the editor and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write the greatest script in the world, and it's going to be called The Sixth Sense, and Bruce Willis is going to star in it. And the guy was like, okay. And Uh, then he just does. He just makes it happen. It's crazy. I think the one thing about M. Night is that he has a self-confidence in himself, so much so that when he sold this script, he attached himself as a director, and the executive who bought the script was fired because he paid so much for it with M. Night attached to direct, who at this point was not a viable option. And this director paid a record amount for the script, almost like $3 million. It's a crazy proposition. No one does this. They don't. I mean, I'm fascinated with M. Night Shyamalan just his brain. I just want to climb inside his brain. I have a feeling – I don't think it's a creepy basement. I think it's like a high-octane, blinged-out, strange Hype Williams room or something is happening <laughs> inside of his brain. I mean this is a guy who when he graduated from high school, uh, in his senior class yearbook, he took out a full page. You know when you graduate right. from high school, you can take like a page for yourself. Well, he, I mean you have to pay for it, don't you? Have, you? Yeah, yeah, you have to pay for it. He took a page out in his yearbook and it was a fake cover of Time. Uh, with himself on the cover in a uh, sitting on a bar stool in a tuxedo, snapping his suspenders, and it said, "NYU grad takes Hollywood by storm." And he hadn't even gotten into NYU yet when he did this. Whoa! And then he does get into NYU, of course. He like right. makes these things happen. Well, I think that we find this in Hollywood all the time. The people who have the most kind of salesmanship can really get things done. And oftentimes, that doesn't always translate into quality. It's like they're good salesmen and then they're good workers. And sometimes they meet and sometimes they don't. And I feel like M. Night, for a while, kind of starts to fall into this trap where I think he's chasing the twist or chasing the idea of himself instead of making a movie that is kind of so grounded because he I think he starts similarly to like where J.J. Abrams started you know J.J. Abrams wrote uh, regarding Henry this taking care of business movie with Jim Belushi and Charles Grodin like doing this kind of like just getting by work and then gets a chance to go full J.J. and then you know gets Felicity and then moves from there to Alias and then gets Mission Impossible and then becomes 
really the next Spielberg for all intents and purposes. But M. Night clings if, to this one trope about him, which is why his films drive me nuts. Which is like, <laughs> I have a secret. I have a secret. And it's fucking that Khan is in the movie. Who cares? It's not a secret. Well, Shouldn't both be. of these guys are people who embrace the idea, the mystery box, the secret of the what twist. the movie is, the twist. Because M. Night definitely had a little bit of a rough patch at a certain point because I think people were expecting him to always make the twist. And I think that would be a hard spot to kind of be in. Yeah, the way he phrased it once is he said, I put all this love and effort in my films and all they care about is the 87th dance move. That's what the audience is waiting right. for me to make. This one move and that dance move is distracting everybody. Right, because people are trying to figure it out. I mean, I remember seeing this movie in the theater and I figured out that Bruce Willis was a ghost when they were on the bus. You did not. I did. And I will tell you, I am not this person who figures stuff out like this. And I, the level of excitement that came over me, I was like, oh, he's a ghost. Then they're at the party, the Misha Barton house party. And I was like, oh, oh, no one's reacting to him. What's going on? And I felt like I discovered something. And it was the last, you know, that was pretty much the last like 10, 15 minutes of the movie. It was such a joy to watch the movie like that, to feel like I was in on a secret for this thing. It was the only time I've ever pieced anything like that together while watching what it. What was it? What was it that made you catch on? I think I thought on the bus, why are they taking a bus? He has a car. He could drive him. They don't need to go on a bus. And I was like, huh. And then it just like, it just like went down <laughs> like that. That was, that was basically like transportation broke it down for me. But there was something so exciting about it. And then I think you want to go back and have that same experience for when you see something at the vision. New York. I'm sorry. I thought people drove and took buses as a normal thing. I well, thought, I thought you're from a public transportation area. But, I'm, but he's in Philadelphia. <laughs> it didn't feel like it feel like people were driving in Philly. It didn't feel like, you know, Tony Collette's driving at the end. Come on. Okay, okay. They're driving. <laughs> Yeah, well, what's interesting is once you know the twist, going back and watching it this time, for me what was fun is the game of Haley Joel Osment knows he's a ghost, clearly from the yes. beginning, and rewatching it that way. Rewatching it as a kid who's forced to hang out with this ghost who really wants to hang out with him, and Haley being like, well, he seems nicer than most of the other ghosts. I guess it's fine. Well, but it makes sense. Like when he first sees him, he runs out of that house and kind of runs down into the church. He's running away from Bruce Willis, which is kind of great. And I, I thought this was interesting, too. Uh, did you notice anything interesting? Um, Haley Joel's name is Cole Sear. Seer, seer, like he sees. Oh, yeah, very interesting. He sees what? Does he see something? Oh, <laughs> he sees dead people. <laughs> God damn it. I enjoy watching this movie as from the point of view of like a dude who's sort of, I didn't like adults when I was a kid. Like mm-hmm. you have to, here he has to hang out with this adult all the time. And this adult's like following him to school and he's just got to put up with this adult. And he's like, okay, you can watch me play with my toys. <laughs> God, I'd rather be hanging out with kids if only kids were nice to me. You know, one of the things I liked about this movie is Bruce Willis. Uh, I will talk about his hair maybe later. That bugged the shit out of me. What was going on with his hair at certain points? I felt like this may have been the beginning of some sort of plugs or weird wig. Whoa, I was going to say something similar. Go on. What were you going to say? I was thinking watching this, I wonder if this is when Bruce Willis, and I have no proof of this. Mm -hmm. Please don't take me seriously. I'm sorry, Bruce, don't get mad at me. If he started doing Botox? Because oh. he is, I find him remarkably inexpressive in this movie. 
Interesting. He is very still. His forehead is always kind of flat. For Bruce Willis, it's a very flat forehead. His right. forehead doesn't wrinkle ever. And I was I was thinking, like, is he just channeling one emotion for this character, which is complete empathy and patience for right. this little kid? Yeah, because I do feel like being a therapist, I'm assuming, is like being an actor. You're acting right. like this person for this other person's benefit. So I was like, is he just acting in this ultra-calm way and being very calm, monotone Bruce Willis? Or is it also he maybe did something to his forehead? I will say that Bruce Willis even being in this movie is happenstance, right? He's only in this movie because he had to do this weird settlement with Disney because um, he was supposed to star in this movie like uh, called like Broadway Brawler. And it didn't go well. He was producing it and starring it. And then he fired the crew and the director, right, like right into like like three weeks into production. And basically this turmoil just forced Disney to totally abandon the movie altogether, which they lost like $17 million. And to make up for it, he said, I'll do three Disney films. And so this was part of that deal. Like we may not have gotten Bruce Willis if his arm wasn't twisted to be in this film. How Betty Davis of him. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he's great in it, right? I mean, this is like that weird point where Bruce Willis, I think, is still kind of like going back and forth on this line of being like a, a good actor. who's like, I thought he was relatable. I felt like emotion from him, even though if his head didn't show it. Um, and he's funny and he's charming. There's something about him that, I don't know, it's it's not the Bruce Willis that you know now. I think the Bruce Willis that you know now has a little bit of a tough guy energy to it. It's a weird thing how I think when all of these actors from the 80s who used to have, I think, a pretty good range, mm-hmm. now they're all action heroes with one range. Yeah. yeah and they, some of them do good with it, like Tom Cruise, but... It's like when what when you cross 50, you just want to prove you're a badass all the time, like to make sure that nobody thinks you're the grandpa. It's the ultimate ego stroke, isn't it? Like for Liam Neeson to be like, I'll take down a train of people on the commuter. It's like if I'm in my 60s and I'm like the badass, fuck yeah, I want to yeah. do that. Come on. <laughs> and because with Bruce Willis, his deal right now is he makes a million dollars a day for anything wow. he does. And if you're willing to pay him a million dollars a day, he'll do whatever you want him to do. Right. I mean, he won't do whatever you want him to do in the film, but he'll do whatever film you want him to do. It's sort of like you you write the check and I will show up. I don't love him in this movie, Paul. You don't. I know. And I don't want to get yelled at from No. I know there's like the whole Tim Robbins thing. People got mad. I said I didn't think Tim was that great in Shawshank either. But no, but let's talk about it. So you don't think that he is connecting. You don't feel like he's carrying the emotional weight of it? Yeah, there's something in him that feels like he doesn't really want to be there. And every time you watch him act against Haley Joel Osment, and Haley Joel Osment is doing a range of emotions. Yeah. And yes, he is just playing a therapist. And yes, that is a therapist mask, but you just see Bruce Willis consistently nodding. And that's he just sort of listens and he nods. He's very pensive in this movie. Yeah. In his very first therapist shot, like when he's on the bed and he's getting yelled at by Donnie Wahlberg, he goes into that face. And I wrote down on my notes like, oh, that's a great face. Oh, his sensitivity. I really actually like his sensitivity here. And then that was really the only emotional note he does for the entire rest of the film. Well, I feel like you see him react to Haley in an interesting way. Like when he does the magic trick at the party, you see him trying to connect to Haley. And I feel like we're also dealing with somebody who's severely, severely depressed. Like his character has been, you know, in this, you know, year-long kind of blackout state of feeling disconnected from his wife, his profession, you know. So I feel like he's carrying this weight on him and then the boy kind of invigorates him to kind of figure it out and, and kind of opens him up. I actually pulled that magic clip yeah. because I felt like it was a moment where Shyamalan is just talking to us, the audience, about what he's doing in this movie. Observe. Magic Penny. 
looks like an ordinary penny. But I do my little magic shake and... Now it's in my right hand. But that's not the end of the magic trick. I do another little shake and... Right there in the vest pocket. That's not the end of the magic trick. I do another little shake and... Right back in the left hand, where it started. That isn't magic. What are you talking about? Of course it's magic. You just kept the penny in that hand the whole time. I pulled that because what they're describing there is just misdirection. And that's exactly what the script is. He's dead the whole time. Oh, no. Knight knows it. And he's like... I'm just going to make you look over here. I'm going to make you look over here. This is what my magic trick is. I would agree with that if that was actually a magic trick. That's a joke. He's doing a joke because a coin is never leaving any anything. It's a joke. It's a bad magic trick. But I, I, I hear what you're saying, but that's <laughs> there's no misdirection there. It's just it's a joke thing. It's a joke scene. Okay, maybe I'm dumb. I didn't know what to say the whole time. So maybe Wait, do you didn't? No. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you thought the coin was really... He never shows it. So? <laughs> I'm very naive. I just I'm, believe whatever people tell me. <laughs> um, okay, 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 yes. okay, okay. How about this one? Okay, sure. They were still driving. This was a very long trip. Dr. Crow? You haven't told bedtime stories before? Uh, not too many, no. Well, you have to add some twists and stuff. Okay, some twists. Some twists? Is that him announcing it? All right, I like it. I buy that a lot more. You know what I noticed in watching that scene? I bet he had to do a lot of these scenes without Haley Joel Osment on set because he's a younger kid. And if you watch that scene, they are in two totally different shots. I don't what? know if that's— How can you tell? Well, because Haley's not in his shot and he's not in Haley's shot. Which makes me think that it's either a choice from a directing standpoint to be like, we're separating the spirit world and the real world, or more than likely, you shoot a 12-hour day, you can't shoot a 12-hour day with a kid. Oh, so your your explanation for why Bruce is okay only wow, is that he's okay. acting against like a stuffed animal, whereas what's Haley acting against? Well, I here's is, the is, thing. If I think Haley is a stuffed animal than Haley. I think Haley is really good, but don't you remember like when this movie came out, people were like, oh, my God, this kid is amazing. He is fantastic in this movie, hands down. But I think we've gotten a better crop of kid actors because it doesn't seem so, like, insane how great this performance is. I mean, do you agree with that? You're or? saying he inspired a generation. You're saying I, he I raised do. the bar. I, I really do. I think he raised the bar because I don't think it sticks out as much as it did when you first see it. It, it is a great performance. It is a, a wonderful performance. I'm not taking anything away from it. I just think that there are kids on his level now. Even if you see Cop Car or Mud, like you're seeing some great performances by younger actors. Well, maybe it's also the style of it because he is just playing... I'm going to say normal kid and with, like, air quotes that nobody yeah. else can see but you. Because, you know, of course he's not normal. He's seeing ghosts. But he's playing him like like a normal kid. And I always feel like kids are off sometimes in movies. You know, they're happy. They're cheerful. They're moppity. They're like, even, oh, it drives me nuts. Like, when you see a movie with, like, a comedy. Right. And there's a kid in the movie. And the yes. kid is always like, oh, I'm precocious and blah, blah, blah. And Haley Joel Osment is an intelligent kid. But he's like an oboe note. You know, he's not like a cheerful flute. Well, I think it's interesting, too, because he's clearly his choice in this role, and this is kind of some stuff I read, too, was he didn't view this movie as 
uh, a horror film. Like he viewed it as a movie about communication. So I think you're watching him not playing into the tropes that maybe another kid would play into. Well, yeah, there's this story that Michael Sarah has now started telling about how he actually also auditioned yes. for The Sixth Sense. Have you heard this story? I haven't heard the whole thing, but I knew that he auditioned. <laughs> what happened is his agent or parent or whoever brought him to the audition did not tell him it was a movie about right. dead people at all. Even He didn't even know that. So he does that magic trick scene that we just heard, right. and he plays it like... They tell you to play kid roles. Right. He's like, wow, ha, that's a trick. And he just did like a, hey, hey, I'm a plucky little guy thing. And After and just like screaming at his teacher, calling him stuttering Stanley, like, yeah. you know, the very intense scene. Yeah, he didn't know any of that. They didn't prep him. So he did not get the job. Whereas like oh, wow. Haley Joel Osment had a very serious stage parent. I think it's kind of fair to say his dad. Oh, yes. I mean, his dad, for better or for worse, you know, and there's a scene where Haley cries and he told, uh, he told Bruce Willis, like, Yell at my son, like yell at him because that's when you're going to make him cry. Like, and that's you know that is uh, that's a serious kind of stage dad to yell at his kid. I remember I was doing this uh, TV show one time, and the premise of the TV show or the sketch in this TV show was that this girl made really good lemonade, and I was going to take her lemonade and kind of co-opt it and make it into my own like amazing lemonade store, but I would keep on making her make the lemonade and I'd have to do things to her to make her work hours and hours and hours to keep on making the lemonade to keep up with my demand for her supply. And at one point I take her dog and I break its neck and she's supposed to cry and be like, oh, and then make more lemonade. And so we're doing the scene in the audition. I break the dog's neck and she reacts to it fine. But we're like, hey, can we get a little bit more emotional? And we said, why don't you go outside and work on that for a second? And she came back in. We do the scene. I break the dog's neck, and she starts bawling, like bawling so, so hard. And she's like, like oh, you okay? And she's like, my dad told me to remember when my dog died, and I love my dog, and I miss my doggy. And we're like, oh, no. This is like these little kids, they're manipulating their emotions before they even understand what they actually are. We, of course, didn't cast her but uh, because we thought that it was too raw for her. <laughs> Like, I was like, we can't put her through this every day. Wait, so she went through that one day and didn't get the job anyway? Yeah, because I didn't want to do it again. Um, but no, I, I'm always like I'm always like afraid of a stage parent sometimes because they are having the mindset of an adult and putting it on a kid. Yeah. Because when you're a kid, you don't have that many emotions to drag on. You can't right. be like, what is this complicated thing that happened to me? It's sort of like a pet died. Exactly. That. I will. I mean, I think Haley Joel's dad... His part of preparation was that he really talked through the script with this kid. Right. Like Haley, when Haley Joel shows up for the audition, unlike poor Michael Sarah, he's read the whole script twice. He understands it. He's talked it out with his dad, like you mentioned. He knows it's really about communication. And so he's able to do it seriously. And M. Night also says that part of why he cast him is he showed up in the audition in a suit and tie. And all the other kids were just in T-shirts. And he was like, this kid takes it seriously. I like you, kid. Haley also, by the way, would prep himself for a couple bad scenes by throwing his own body against the wall over and over and over and over again to freak himself out. And nobody was telling him to do that. That was just him. I want to tag that and say I think why Haley is so good in this movie is because he's a weird kid. You're right. His dad spoke to him like an adult. I don't know if that was the best thing, but he's a little bit off. And I think the character is a little bit off. And the character is a little disconnected from kids. And he himself is is a little disconnected from kids. He's like one of those people that you would hear him go like, I can't talk to kids my age. It's like, that's a little bit weird. Yeah. But it's okay. He's not a weird guy. It's just like, as a child, he had that thing. Yeah, I heard when he was a child, uh, people would ask him what he wanted to be when he was a kid, when he was like three. And he said, 
a paleontologist, and he said it correctly. That's hilarious. <laughs> Not just a kid who wants to see dinosaurs. By the way, if we're doing the Haley Joel Osment origin story. Yeah. Uh, so his whole story is that he was apparently discovered when he was four years old in an Ikea. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, which I, I kind of I, I believe in this origin story with an asterisk. I think his okay. dad was always going to encourage him to act. Um, you get the sense his dad was an actor. His dad was like a theater guy. They were definitely going to have an acting kid, mm-hmm. I would say. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Sure. Okay, guessing. sure. I'm guessing. But he's walking through an Ikea that I just opened in L.A. with his mom. And um, a guy shows up and he's like, hey, kid, you should audition for this thing. And he gives him a card. They go to this audition and it turns out to be for a Pizza Hut commercial. And Haley Joel, um, it's a whole line of kids. There's like hundreds of them. And his mom is like, I don't know. We should go home. And then they get up to his audition and they tell him to describe the biggest thing he's ever seen in his life. And every other kid has been describing like a whale. And he describes an IMAX screen, which is also sort of like a four year an IMAX. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, but he does it. He gets the job. And actually, let's let's hear him in that commercial because it's kind of a turning point in his life. This commercial actually gets him discovered. Recently, an object was sighted. It was big. Bigger than big. Huge, huge, large, astronomically big. Big would be an understatement. Oh, there he is. So cute. What a cute kid. (laughs) Big would be an understatement. He's already being a serious little man. I love him. His dad said that he always talked to him like he was a grown-up and never did baby talk. And there you go. Big would be an understatement. But yeah. that is what gets him discovered, and that's what gets him Forrest Gump. So we're going to be seeing him again whenever we fucking get to Forrest Gump. Oh, right. He is in Forrest Gump. I forgot about that. I really thought this was his breakthrough role. I mean, we're talking about kids, by the way. I think it's interesting to talk about another person we grew up with who has a very pivotal role in this movie, which, of course, is Donnie Wahlberg. Oh, I thought you were going to say Misha Barton. Oh, <laughs> I forgot about Misha. Misha's good. <laughs> But Donnie Wahlberg was like, that was the the thing that I think everyone was really surprised at in the beginning of the movie. Like Donnie Wahlberg from New Kids on the Block in this movie, serious role, lost like 43 pounds, is I, – I think that that's an electric scene. Like I watched that and I was like, whoa, this movie is really good. Like it like – it, like, it, Pulled me in immediately because there's something so scary about being in your home at night, a little drunk. They're just about like ready to have sex, him and his wife, Bruce Willis and his wife. And he's been kind of cocky. He's got the goofy stripper dance. It's it's such a fun scene that turns so quickly and the gun is pulled out so quickly. It just felt so alive and real. And I think that scene does a great job of saying to you, get ready because it's going to come at you fast and you're not going to know what hit you because it's not like I think another director or another writer might have had Donnie Wahlberg hold that gun on him the entire time. Right, it's like looming. the suspense of the staring at it. Is it going to go off? Yeah, and no, and Donnie Wahlberg is doing this thing that's like, it's crazy, but it's not like, ah, you know, it's not like it's not like Jared Leto Joker. It's more like this really conflicted, really, I don't know, it, it felt like someone really suffering from mental illness. He uh, is really good in it. He looks he, he looks awful in the best way. It yeah. Could, do you think he has like pretty good abs? I did notice that, <laughs> but I think it's like those uh, Christian Bale, like in the mechanic or the machinist, like where he's lost so much weight that all you see is abs because there's nothing left. There's no fat left. I feel like he did look pretty good for a guy with uh you know, that's skinny. Yeah, they're like, he's got great abs. Let's make up for it by giving him the filthiest underwear on the planet. And maybe the underwear and maybe uh, the abs. Dirty, tidy whities are the grossest thing to me. They're so gross. It's like, ooh, what happened there? Why haven't you changed it? Ugh. Speaking of dirty underwear, I wanted to say, did you notice this movie shares something, I believe, with another film that we've talked about? Uh, okay. It's very, very deep dive. But um, 
cheese dick. <gasps> oh my god! I, yes, yes. <laughs> I want to talk about cheese dick. Holy shit! It it I rocketed up from my couch when I heard the term <laughs> cheese dick, and I was like, finally, we can get back into this debate about what a cheese dick is, and what better transition than talking about Donnie's dirty, dirty, dirty undies. Cheese dick, by the way, if this is perhaps the very first episode of Unspooled you're listening to, to which I'm sorry, mm-hmm. for jumping into the cheese dick thing, is in Platoon. It's right. in Platoon several times, actually. Yeah. It's here. Keep this sorry cheese dick off my ass. And then here's our cheese dick here. Keep moving, cheese dick. Okay, so what were we told a cheese dick meant? Well, we we we, hi, we hypothesized on it. I don't think we got a, a totally correct answer. I still, I still believe it's someone who has not cleaned their uh, their genitalia properly, uh, not someone who has a genitals made out of cheese. Yeah, someone else said that they think that cheese dick refers to like the 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 texture. I guess a te- I don't know if texture is the right word. The the pressure, the squeeze. I'm I'm making a squeezing motion with my hand. Whatever that is, it, right? The, your dick feels like cheese too. Which I'm no. also. I mean, there's Parmesan. There's like Velveeta. Well, look. I mean, look. If you go to anywhere like UrbanDictionary.com, they're going to tell you it's about a person who does not wash his penis often, so provides a breeding ground for a smegma loving bacteria. Hence the cheese. What episode of Unspooled is this? It's episode 16. Okay, so we've watched 16 of 100 American Film Institute movies. What are the odds we're going to get another cheese dick in the other 84? Oh, I feel like we at least get two more. What do you think? I, you know, if, I mean, if we were doing this in like some sort of a sample thing with like the beads and the pale full yeah. of other beads, the black and the white beads or something, sure. I would be like, yeah, we're probably, our odds are that we're going to get at least another six or seven cheese dicks. Although I'd, I'll, I will be shocked if we get one, but I okay. am hoping that we do. All right. So you're going under, I'm saying two, you're saying less than two. <laughs> Let's see where we land. Cheese dick competition begins. You know, it's funny, this whole idea of, like, the acting kid, because one of the main characters in this movie is a kid who acts. And I thought that was such a nice touch for the film because it kind of plays into all the tropes of what we know of actory kids. And it's a great kind of comparison to put that person against Haley Joel. They're all almost like he's his nemesis in this film. So it's a really nice way to kind of comment on the typical actor kid. And then it almost elevates, I think, Haley's performance because it is more real. It is more grounded. Does yeah. that make sense? I love that you just like segued into Tommy Tomasino because I'm obsessed with Tommy Tomasino in really? this movie. This watch made me like a total Tommy Tomasino nut. In fact, let's just give Tommy Tomasino his whole moment on the show. And here's why. Because there is some Tommy Tomasino behind-the-scenes drama right now happening. Mommy, Daddy, (coughs) my throat hurts. The kid who plays Tommy Tomasino is a kid named Trevor Morgan. Okay. Uh, Trevor Morgan... This isn't his first film that he did with Haley Joel Osment. Even in 1999, he had done another film already with Haley Joel Osment this year. And it was called I'll Remember April. And it was about these four kids who discover, like, during World War II, this Japanese uh, man who, like, washes ashore on on, on the Pacific Island in the America. And uh, the kid who plays Tommy Tomasino, Trevor, is the star of this movie. He's the star of I'll Remember April. Haley Joel Osment is just one of his buddies. But when The Sixth Sense comes out, Haley Joel Osment is now, like, famous Oscar-nominated kid. So they swap faces on the VHS box. And Haley Joel Osment gets the big glamour shot. And this poor kid, Trevor Morgan, doesn't. So, with that in mind, let's start off 
with Tommy Tomasino teaching us about your type of favorite comedy. Hey, freak, how'd you like that arm around the shoulder bit? I just made that up. I went with it. It's great actors do. It's called improv. Big ups to improv. Yep. <laughs> Tommy Tomasino is taking the right classes. I actually believe I taught him in a UCB level one class. Yeah, he was really good. The, the, no, I'm just joking. Oh, God. <laughs> That's just a character, Tommy so Tomasino. Like, I think Trevor Morgan still acts. I hope he does. I'm I, sure I, he I does. think his Tommy Tomasino was good, so I thought there was a world where you could have. No, he's him. great in this movie, and I think he shows what we think of a normal, precocious kid. So now let's hear some more Tommy Tomasino deep thoughts on acting. Did you think the play sucked big, Tom? <laughs> what? Tommy Tomasimo acted in a cough syrup commercial. He said everyone was self-conscious and unrealistic. He said the play sucked big time. This Tommy kid sounds like a real punk. I thought the play was excellent. Better than Cats. Cats? I mean, Better than Cats? I know, and that's like such a, like, like a, like a hack go-to. Like, there's an SNL sketch where, like, basically everyone's leaving a Broadway theater and like, it's better than Cats. It's better than Cats. And they're all just, like, hypnotized. Oh, you think that's a deep-cut SNL joke? I do, because I think that was, like, a, a go-to thing. You'd always say, it's better than Cats. Uh, I just thought that was a genuine emotion about the, the, the musical Cats. Well, I grew up in New York, and there were these commercials always for Broadway shows, and there's a famous one. I don't remember which one it was, but there's a woman who came out, and she's like, it's better than Cats. Oh, thank you for explaining that, because I, as as a Texan, all yeah. we ever get in commercials is just like, Texan toast, Texas <laughs> gravy. Are you a Texan? You're a Texan. You like this. We don't get any Cats references. At last, there's something to shout about on Broadway. I loved it. It, it was, was much better than Cats. I'm going to see it again and again. A spectacular evening of theatrical thrills. I loved it. It was much better than Cats. I am going to see it again and again. Speaking of humor in this movie, I know we had a disagreement about the magic trick versus it being a joke or misdirection, but I also think one of the things that's great in that scene with Tommy Salmasino is everyone holding up the VHS camcorders, taping the performance. Like, there's a lot of subtle, fun stuff in this movie. And I think, you know, one of my big issues with, like, a lot of entertainment sometimes is that people forget to add levity to it. I think there's a difference between Lost and Westworld because of just the seriousness in which they take itself. I love them both. But there's something more enjoyable about watching Lost after week after week because the characters have a little bit of a lightness to themselves. And and I think even a show, like a very heavy show like Deadwood, there's a lightness to, or there's humor in that world. And I think sometimes people like start to peel out all that sort of stuff. And I would argue M. Night kind of walks into that territory for a little bit of time. And he's doing really funny stuff in this movie. I love that Kim Corner moment because I was just thinking like, oh, today we would 100% do that joke with cell phones. Right. But M. Night having a sense of humor is a little rare. I mean, he does that thing that that to me I always gets my little hackles up a little bit, except if it's all about Eve, which is when you have uh, a movie where you just make fun of critics and critics are the bad guy. Right. Which he did in Lady in the Water. I mean, it was, I feel I feel like... As soon as you start making fun of critics, maybe your movie is a little bad. But then again, that Ratatouille is okay, and All About Eve is great. So, I don't know. Make fun of critics at your own peril is what I'm saying. having an episode all about spirits and ghosts in the afterworld. Yes. And I thought we should bring in somebody who does nothing but talk to ghosts. 
Oh, he is awesome. One of my favorite magicians, but he's also a great actor. He's been in Ghost Story and Lady Dynamite and Glow, as well as uh, the band Possum Dixon, which is just great. So it's awesome to have Rob here. Welcome, Rob. Okay, so Rob, my first question is just this. Can anyone talk to dead people? Anyone can talk to dead people. Whether or not the dead talk back is a whole different (laughs) topic and idea. So it's the conversation that matters? I mean, I would say I probably subscribe to the adage that if you believe, you will receive. So if you want to talk to a dead person, you certainly can do that. And they might talk back to you if you really want to hear them. I mean, first let me just qualify by saying I perform seances at the Magic Castle for audiences that are prepared to contact the spirit of Harry Houdini. Got it. And it's, it's a very specific thing. So more novelty-based in the sense that it's one ghost that we're getting. Or is Precisely. It, is it more like celebrity-based? Like I want to like rub elbows with like a famous dude and not just somebody's aunt. I think, well, I think up there, it's, it's, we're recreating a Victorian style seance back in the days when people held hands and lights came down and things went bump in the night when it was a spiritualism was like a, it was a, it was a a craze. It was a fad. But that said, people will always stop me at the end and say, could you contact my, my brother or my aunt Judy or whatever? And that's always fascinating to me, especially in this kind of almost animated sense where that happens. It's purely for entertainment that people still think that they that I have this ability to do that. Houdini was notorious, right, as one of the people who, like, you know, didn't he tell his wife, like, go to everyone in the world and, you know, and here's a secret word. Like, he wanted to, I think, believe or, or disprove, and he's like, the only way I can do this is by being on the, the dead side of that equation. Exactly. I mean, during the latter part of his career, he spent most of his time debunking spiritualists and people that thought that they could contact the dead. And for a great reason. You know, you got what was World War One just happened. And so you have these crooks, these shysters and gypsies who are saying, you lost your husband in the war for 20 bucks. We can go contact him. And he, I can tell you whatever you want. Give, I can send a message, you know, to him through you. Houdini hated that. You know, he couldn't stand that these people were using, and they were using magic tricks to do that. It was essentially cheap parlor tricks to to become a, a gypsy or a spiritualist. That's all it really took. But again, like I like I said earlier, people sometimes people just really want to believe. They still like there's unfinished business. You know, I think right. a lot of times we have that. So like, you just want to say that one last thing to somebody, or or get that one last piece of information, or. Or like you are a talented actor, you're a magician, you're a musician, you've you are a performer, I would say, like in the in the biggest sense of the word. Could you use this ability for bad? Like if 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 someone did come to you say, contact my brother, could you do you think you could give a convincing Paul, I could start a cult <laughs> and probably be pretty good at it because there's always I don't know who your listeners are. There's always enough dumb people right. that just want to believe. Our listeners are very smart, but I want to hear about these dumb are people. Are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the th- yeah, I mean, the thing is people just people just want to believe. That's how people get into religion and they fall into these things because somebody says, I have, I have the answers for you. And as vulnerable as these people are to come to these seances, even at the Magic Castle, I, I look in their eyes and they're like, we want you to come to our home and do this thing and... We lost our pet, and we want you to, you know, once someone asked me about right. bringing back a German shepherd and doing a seance, I'm like, I just, I'm sort of speechless, you know, because I feel like, yeah, I'm an entertainer. That's kind of where it ends. 
but I've got a face for this thing. So people t- tend to almost, ah, you, you know, they see you in this, right. in this, you know, gaunt visage and a candlelight and suddenly you're Aleister Crowley or, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, how many seances did you do yesterday? Well, uh, I did four. Last night I did four wow. at the Magic Castle, and uh, which just marks my, my 200th seance. I've been doing wow. it for about 10 years up there. You know, when you are performing magic, you are basically taking people on this journey because what you're doing is – people are coming to see you perform, whether it's close-up magic or whatever. They know it's tricks, but you want to believe that it is beyond what you're – like it, that there is – a real sense of magic to it. That's exactly right. And especially, you know, you go see a good movie, you want to disappear, you put on a good record, you want to put the needle drop and be like, I'll see you on side two. Yeah. You just want to drop out and disappear from the world. You go into a good magic show, same thing. If somebody's really doing what they're supposed to be doing, that's it. You go see a great band, you're like, and an hour later, you're like, oh my God, where did I just yeah. go? It was amazing. Well, it sounds like from the way I hear you, Describe your senses. You've almost become more interested in the human beings than the spirit world. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, it's all about performance. And, you know, I I meet, I come into these things. I don't typically don't know who's coming into the seance. And so people go in there going, I'm ready. I, I'm going to lower the veil. I'm going to let, let's let some weird stuff happen. And then they kind of tiptoe and they just, they're just kind of waiting for you. And I know that I'm performing magic effects, but the the material that I've, developed and performing that room is all about pulling out connections with other people and it's for it's totally for entertainment and it's fun and but it, for me it's it's a thrill to see people really kind of let me into their world just for a second to go to that place yeah because you can you're reading people all the time right? I mean, yeah of right? course and there's a certain amount of that that i i loan into the performance and at no point Am I trying to say, yes, For I can contact your Aunt Judy or whatever? Well, I've always wondered about the etiquette of a seance, too. I mean, that, that like, would a ghost even be cool with people being like, hey, come talk to me? Or is it like like adding somebody you don't know on Twitter and being like, hey, hey hello, hi? Well, I don't know. They, they had a pretty good go of it in the, you know, 1875 through 1925 was the big era for, for seances, primarily in uh, America and England. I believe in my limited knowledge of this field— back in that time, very showy, right? It's like, and I think it's the idea of we're in a room, we're holding hands, candles. And now when you meet these people who say they have this connection, it's almost on the opposite side of the spectrum. Like I've, it's so bare bones. It's Long Island medium. It's that, you know, this level of, I, I have no artifice. So it has to be real because, and that's an interesting thing. It's an interesting way that things go. I would even argue that magic has kind of gone in that direction too. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it goes from this, the new suspension of disbelief is almost like to peel back the showmanship and be like, it's, there's no show, even though you're doing a crazy show. Like I just saw David Blaine at the, at uh, the Kodak theater over here. Great show. He's almost telling you, this is not a show. I'm just doing real stuff. And (laughs) And, you know, you're watching it. You're like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm buying. But, yeah, it's a fucking show. You're doing a show. That's definitely the David Blaine approach to the, yeah, coming yeah. in a black T-shirt and like, I'm just going to do a couple things for you, 10,000 people. Yeah. Uh, you know, because like, he's probably not the guy who's going to be like, good evening, everyone. Right. I'm going to, t-, you know, he's not, that's, he's kind of, he's smart, for, right. you know, for sort of taking that approach. Uh, but for me, I, I I love kind of diving into that weird movie hypnotist from the yeah. 1950s like where does this man like what Ed Wood movie did this man just come out of 
I mean, one of the most memorable things I ever saw you do at the Magic Castle was you just stared at the audience and then you drew on your face with a Sharpie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you're giving me that stare now and it's kind of freaking me out. Yeah. David Blaine wanted that piece for me. He called me and said, I want to draw my face with a Sharpie and do some long staring. And I, I, I called him. It wasn't <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, you try, you find ways to entertain people and or yourself. I mean, I just want to point out the irony that here we are talking about how to talk to people who are dead. And what we're talking about is how to connect more with the people who are alive in the room with us. You know what? I'll tell you something. That is uh, a common theme that some of the more the more bright mediums have left their, their adage, their kind of, you know, the thesis statement is connect with those that you love while they're here rather than wait till they're dead and pay some idiot $500 to contact him and get some false information. It's a little hippie, you know, like, but I love it. I I do too. Yeah. And, and in researching this, I'm like, I'll, I'll find texting friends just like a while, like, I love you. (laughs) So it's, you know, when you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this, but yeah, why not? You know, better than they're going to be gone one day and I'm going to wish, oh, man, if I could only talk to my buddy who's now gone, you know, whatever. There's something to it. And I think that that's kind of hip in its own way. By the way, you mentioned like the couple who wanted to talk to their German shepherd. Like what what do you think they were conceiving of? What do you think? They were, <laughs> how do you think they were imagining yeah. that would go? Um, well, we probably I, I, I think that they would let me engineer that in any way that I wanted. If I said, we're going to get in our bathing suits and go to Zuma Beach and peck a picnic. <laughs> and you're going to bring a picture of the dog. And then we're going to watch uh, five episodes of Lassie. Then we're going to go for a swim. Then we'll come out. And you're going to dry me off. It's like I yeah, could just, right, I just yeah. could make up this whole thing. Right. And they'd probably say, well, he knows. So, yeah, pay him. And let's yeah. go do. Let, yeah, let's go get the, you know. It, that's the craziness of this. Is like people get so desperate for, for these, you know. That, that's so interesting. I know. It is like. It's like on one level, it's totally idiotic. On another level, it's really fascinating. Well, I'd love to, you know, make a pact right here, like with your guidance. Whoever one of us dies first, Paul, yeah. which I hope is many years in the future. Yeah, please, please. We should maybe see, with your advice from how Harry Houdini did it, how to contact the other person and let them know that the sixth sense is true. Okay. Well, let me tell you how Harry did it. First with Bessie, his wife, an assistant of 32 years. Uh, their pact was whoever was going to die first, the other had to conduct 10 annual seances. So first, you have right. to be committed to – are you both committed to that? I guess so. Yes. We're in. We're on in. the yes. day the person dies. Okay. So, so for 10 years, you're going to do this. The 10th year, you got to do it on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel. Okay. So we have to make arrangements to get sure. it there from 10 years from whenever the death date yeah. is. Sounds good. Please don't die on my birthday. Okay. That's fine. And, you know, uh, yeah, same okay. for you. Cool. Thanks. And then you need a couple of words. So you need – and. For example, uh, with Harry and Bessie, the two words were – well, the one word was believe, okay? So if, if, if either of them were going to come back, the word would be believe, and that would be written on a – it could be written on this table, right. uh, for example. Uh, chalkboard slate spray-painted on the Scientology building. It doesn't matter. Right. You can do it. It's all up to you. Uh, and then secondly, the, the other word was Rosabelle, which was a song that uh, Bessie used to sing in the vaudeville area before she met Harry. So this was the, – they had these two words. You could pick the word. It didn't matter. But if you could – so you need to find your own secret words and don't okay, tell we'll anyone. We can't, oh, yeah. so we can't announce We can't put now. it on the podcast. No, no. We'll do this not. Because then that would be, it would open us up to uh, charlatans. Right. right. 
Some some jerk like me might come in and say, <laughs> I know the word. You see, don't want to do that. Don't even put it in a text. Did Bessie finally reveal those words? Yeah, she did. And she basically spent the rest of her life keeping his name in the paper. Like okay. she um, oddly married the man who conducted the 10th and final Houdini seance, oh, wow. Dr. Edward Saint. Shacked up with him and they, which was kind of cool, they, they really made their pact was keep Houdini's name alive. Let's just keep that going in the paper to keep his, his spirit was kind of, that was, right. you know, the way that they kind of kept him alive. So much that even in the 80s when Madonna was becoming famous, she said to her press people, I want what Houdini had. Because I don't know what Houdini did. I know he was famous yeah. in the, a long time ago. But people just know Houdini. They think, oh, my cat's name's Houdini because he can escape from something. He was an escapologist, right? So, right. But Madonna wanted, that was the model. She's like, I want, figure out how they did Houdini's press. That's what I want for me. Wow. So there's something to it. Well, this is fantastic. This is so great to talk to you and yeah. get a little insight on this all. Well, I hope there was some insight. Thank you for there having was. me. I mean, you know what? It's just fun talking to you guys because yeah. you guys are both awesome. So yeah. it's it's cool being here. Yeah. But so let's get back to talking about M. Night and what he's doing. I think one of the smartest things that he did in this movie, and I know he likes to always make his movies in Philadelphia because that's where he grew up, but Philadelphia is such a perfect setting, I think, for The Sixth Sense because if you were going to see ghosts in any major American city, this is probably the best one. Oh, absolutely. I feel like any of these cities that have a little bit of history to them, like, enjoy their ghost culture. I was shooting a movie down in Savannah, and I went out one night and walked literally between... 10 different ghost tours. I went on two of them just because I love that shit. But I realized that there are 60 different ghost tours at any given time in Savannah. Like I feel like it is a city where people first were and ghosts are still. Yeah, and I believe it in Philly. Also, I feel like M. Night is just building up this history idea of, of Philadelphia because basically anytime he doesn't know how to start a scene, he just cuts to like a statue somewhere. And he's like, there's a lot of history here. A lot of dead people. <laughs> I mean, there's this whole thing in the movie where they say if something is red, Mm -hmm. M. Night has been like, watch for anything that's red. Because if it's red, it means it's been touched by the spirit world. But there are moments when Bruce Willis looks around Philadelphia, and most of the houses are brick red. Because every house in Philadelphia is so old, somebody's definitely died there. Well, do you know that Toni Collette got haunted during this movie? What? Yes. Toni Collette, when she was in her Philadelphia hotel room, she always woke up in the middle of the night repeating a number. She would be like... One, 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 three, 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 or four, four, four. She would wake up and have that going on in her head. Yeah. Like Morse code? Yeah. (laughs) But I was thinking, like, if you did The Sixth Sense in L.A., Mm -hmm. most of the ghosts, I feel like, would almost be obligated to be like, I'm an old-time Hollywood star. How are you? (laughs) Let me tell you about my my time with Louis B. Mayer. Yeah, I think in Philadelphia it feels more, I don't know, like— Realistic ghosts? <laughs> yeah, and there's something interesting I find kind of going on with all the ghosts they pick, which is they all seem based on human trauma of people doing things to each other. Yes. You know, there's – it's like a woman who's been beaten by her husband or like a girl who's been poisoned by her mom or which like is... a kid with gun control or or hung people who look like they were lynched in his school. I mean, you look at him, it's like a woman and a black man. It feels like M. Night with his corpses is even trying to say something pointed about what happens to humans. A hundred percent. And you know, there's even a scene they cut out of this movie where it was a really graphic scene where um, 
Osmond looks out the window and he sees an entire hospital wing of horribly disfigured and mutilated people, um, which is another way of just seeing people like in severe trauma in this hospital. People hypothesize that that scene was cut out because it would have made the film R instead of probably PG-13. I think that that the most horrifying thing in this movie is the subplot with Misha Barton because uh, it's so kind of twisted. It's it's a cool tale that we're kind of jumping into at the end. You know, it's sort of like it, we only see the, the last moments of this story. And it's uh, that, that one's really spooky, just the way they shoot that and everything. Yeah, but you think everybody at that funeral would know that the mom killed her just because the mom is wearing red at the funeral? Mm. Everyone else is in black, and this mom is like, hello. Yeah, you know what? I didn't think about that until now. Why was she wearing red? Who wears red to your kid's funeral? It's kind of like double indemnity. She was trying on that black veil a little bit too early. <laughs> but yeah, what's also interesting to talk about, though, about that funeral scene, and you touched on it when you were talking about the buses, is that M. Night is playing with our human expectation. He walks into this funeral place, and he's not talking to anybody. And if you weren't a genius like Paul, if you were more like me. Yeah, 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 sure. I was adding on to it my level of, oh, well, they snuck into this funeral. Of course they don't want to talk to people. Of course that's uh, why he's not talking to anybody. You're adding in those dots. And M. Night, I think, did a good job of placing it in situations where it makes sense they're not talking. It makes sense he's not talking to his wife if he showed up late for their dinner. It makes sense he's not talking to Tony Collette's mom if they've just been waiting for the kid to get home. Right. You get the sense they already were talking. And so yeah. he, it not it doesn't stand out as weird. He's not like walking through a 7-Eleven or something and right. like bumping into somebody and not saying excuse no, me. No, but it's you're again, you're using this like dialogue of film that we know to fill in the dots. And I think that that's one of the smartest things he does. Here's what I'll say about this movie. If I was to give it a little nitpick, I think that sometimes the camera angles were distracting. I thought the movie is pretty plainly shot, and I think actually that makes the movie very engaging. But there are certain moments where they do this kind of like fisheye lens or they get in or like a little push. Or they do it like tilted. They're like, it's a hallway, but it's crooked. Yeah, and I felt like I was like, oh, you don't need that. It felt like that was more like of a shock kind of horror movie, whereas the movie, I think, plays better as this drama. Like We're talking about this idea. It's about communication. It's not about those moments. And I did feel like in watching it this time, I was like, oh, those feel cheap to me. And they're used so sparingly that they 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 feel out of place. That's such an interesting point because I think that's a lot of why The Sixth Sense works in general. Everything you're describing is that it's a movie where M. Night stripped away everything horror-ish except those couple things. And when they stand out, they stand out. Yeah. But he said specifically, thinking of a hallway scene, he said, in horror movies, they always have this blue light in these scary hallway scenes. Like, nobody's hallway is a blue light hallway. No right. one's like, oh, my hallway's all blue and creepy and weird. He said he wanted to shoot a hallway with normal ha- hallway lighting so that when you home- went home to your hallway, it looked like your hallway. And it was even scarier. So it's all about removing it. I mean, even yeah. with the ghosts, I would I would imagine that somebody had the brilliant idea when they were, if they were writing a script like this. What if one of the ghosts was George Washington? You right, know? right. And and he was like, no, it's like a normal thing. There's not a normal. It's it's all here. It doesn't need to be kicked up another notch. Well, I will say that that's again why you make a scene like Haley Joel Osment's character going to pee in the middle of the night. Like you feel the terror, and you're not seeing anything. And you know they do a great job of like showing you when the thermostat goes down. And I I realized like why isn't he cold when Bruce Willis is around? And then I realized that. It only gets cold when the ghosts are angry. Which is weird because I think that's true. But also that last scene that Bruce Willis has with his wife, she's cold. You see her breath and he's not angry. Oh. Right? Yes, you're so right. what is that? 
I think that at that point they're just kind of going, ta-da, and they're like, here's a trick, here's a trick, here's a trick. And they're like trying to show you the entire bada thing. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, it's, you know, maybe yeah. he's angry because he's coming home to her and he's like, we haven't talked, goddammit, you're cheating on me with this guy, this fucking loser from the furniture store. Like, you know, maybe he's angry, I don't know. And he wants to kind of, you know, connect with her. I don't know. Yeah, you know, speaking of it from watching a movie from a different character's perspective, if we have the Haley Joel Osment, God Won't This Ghost Leave Me Alone movie, we have her like, I've been a pretty good widow. I'm taking my time not dating again. Maybe it's sweet that this guy is really nice to me, but the whole movie is framed from Bruce Willis's point of view, so it's like, fuck this. This sucks. <laughs> what a cheating bitch. And she's really lovely. But by the way, she's not cheating because she's I think she, she, yeah, she has this moment where she kisses him in the store in the middle of a sale because she's selling that ring, upselling, by the way, that ring to that couple. And... Uh, <laughs> and then immediately, like, sits down to open a birthday gift. I'm like, you got customers on the floor. Let's, let's be clear on that because they cut to them again. I'm like... If I started watching my my person who was buying a ring from start making out on the floor, necking, like just make the sale neck after they leave. Um, yeah, I think she's kind of a bad saleswoman. I mean, I think she's a lovely widow and a yes. bad saleswoman because she's like, oh, you're getting married. You're starting your life together. Lots of dead people owned this ring. This ring will never truly be yours. Nothing is yours. You are cursed. I didn't take it that way, but now that you say it, I can't not. It's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, too, was how they kind of dressed Bruce throughout the movie. Apparently, he only wears in the movie what his character touched the night of his death. So if you watch the film, he's always wearing the same blue shirt. Sometimes he's got the tie on. Sometimes he's got the jacket on. And sometimes he has a sweatshirt on. But it's the same outfit. And to be able to hide that really effectively throughout the entire film is also a great idea of balancing with color and and not calling it out. It's like he's able to switch enough looks that he looks like he is consistently in a new outfit, <laughs> but he's only in the same outfit. God, you know, I have to say, I didn't even notice that because I always imagine that, I'm sorry to all men out there, that yeah. men can kind of dress a little boring and they 100%. have their little uniform. Yeah. Whereas if it was Tony Collette wearing that like shiny bronzy blouse the whole time, I would have definitely noticed that. I, oh. I guess I'm a girl. I pay more attention to women's By clothes. the way, can we just say all hail Tony Collette? I love Tony Collette, and she is great in this movie. Apparently didn't even know it was a horror movie. She thought it was like a character drama, uh, which is odd because she should have read the script and could tell. <laughs> but um, I think she's, she's fantastic. phenomenal in this. Wow. I, I mean, yeah. I, I got on the Tony Collette train very early. Mm-hmm. Some bragging rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you get your bus revelation that he's sure. a ghost. I get my I loved her since Muriel's wedding. That was okay. a movie that hit me really, really hard. Never saw it. Oh, it's amazing. It's I think it's where she really broke out in America. It's Real, a movie yeah. she did when she was back home in Australia. It's terrific. Oh, you gotta watch it. Oh, do you like ABBA? Uh, like, yes, of yeah, course. Come on, I saw Mom Mia on Broadway. Yeah, gotta watch it. Gotta right. watch it. Was it better than Cats? It was better than Cats. I'm gonna <laughs> see it again and again. Uh, but so she's just so lovely in this. She looks beautiful. I don't know if I've ever seen Tony Clip filmed. So just lush, you know, her lips, her cheeks, her hair, her long red nails. But like as a working person, right? Like, and I think that there's a a tendency in film to take your working class person and either play it up so it's almost like Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny. Marissa Tomei, who they wanted in this movie, I think, at first. Oh, yes. Down to Tony and Marissa. Or you get something that is, I think, more to this thing, which is more understated. Like she's wearing the clothes that she would wear. She is... You know, not playing an over-the-top Philadelphia accent. She's just, I think she feels very real. And it's a an amazing performance, especially the scene, you know, there's, I think every scene that she really has with Haley Joel Osment is so kind of emotionally packed. It's like, 
you know, uh, you feel her afraid of her child. And I think that that's another good, like, subplot in this film, this idea that she's nervous. Like, her son is, in her mind, not well. Yeah, yeah. and she's nervous he could get taken away from her, too, yeah. because he is covered in scratches. Yeah. I mean, let's play a little bit of that scene of her at the doctor, mm. um, right after he's had his breakdown at the birthday party. And... She's really just on edge. I mean, watching this Tony Collette here, I kept thinking of, did you see Hereditary? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Watching Tony Collette just do these roles. To She has this ability to be, like, loving, maternal, complicated, her own woman. You sense that she is her own woman apart yes. from being a mother, that something's happened in her life. Yes. And if there was, was, like, a seven hour, if this was the James Cameron cut, maybe we'd know about it. But here she is. At the doctor. By the way, as you listen to this doctor, it's M. Night Shyamalan, and that is important for a reason we'll say in a second. There's some cuts and bruises on your son that are concerning me. Man. Yeah, those are from sports. You think I hurt my child? I think I'm a bad mother. Mrs. Sloan over there? She's a social worker with the hospital. And she's gonna ask you a couple procedural questions. What happened to my child today? Something was happening to him, physically happening. Something was very wrong. So M. Knight decided he wanted to play the doctor. He wanted to cameo in his own movie because he comes from a whole family of doctors. They wanted yes. him to be a doctor, but then they're like, okay, fine, you could be Spielberg. Uh, he hated his performance so yes, much when I he watched this. it later that he cut most of that scene down, which to me I'm a little bummed at because I think we missed out on maybe some even more amazing Tony. But but can I also ask this question like, okay, he was so upset with his performance that he decided to put himself in every movie since then. <laughs> and and I would argue in Signs, one of uh, the most pivotal scenes in that film. Like, what happened? Did his acting get better? I found this interview with him, by the way, where this um, – the journalist is like, why do people you think have a problem with you? And he's like, well, people think I'm cocky. And the journalist goes, well, you are cocky. And M. Knight gets mad that the journalist just repeated back that he is cocky. And for the rest of the interview, he's kind of a dick. And he refers to her as like, or him as like saying hostile things. Wow. <laughs> M. Um, Knight, what are you going to do? I will say with that caveat, I like what he's been doing lately. I like that M. Knight's going back to these more straightforward, chillery things. Yes, I like the with, grandparents movie. Yeah, well, yeah, that was okay. I mean, I, I thought that that was the beginning of something interesting. And then Split was really good. I like Split a lot. I didn't see the one in the elevator. Oh, I didn't see the elevator one. Devil or something like yeah. that. Yeah, devil. And then I'm really looking forward to Glass. Me too. I'm down. I really like Unbreakable is a movie that I did not like when I saw it the first time. And it really grew on me. And then I haven't seen it in many, many years. But I think I was upset about Unbreakable because it didn't have like that twist that Sixth Sense had. And... And I was kind of looking for it like that, and I didn't enjoy it on a level of just enjoying the film. Yeah, um, but now they're going towards a straightforward horror. I feel like he's changed direction. Yeah. He's I mean, like, I think he's I'll like— I'll just do this premise really well. I know we're getting to the end of the episode here, but I want to give a little shout-out to an MVP in this movie. Somebody who I think does a great job, does not get any uh, notice, doesn't get any acclaim at all. Do you know who I might be talking about? No, who? I am talking about the woman— who does the wedding testimonial the first time you see the video. Oh, she's great. Isn't she great? She does something in that that kind of does all the backstory for the entire movie and their relationship. 
and she's playing drunk and she's playing loose. I was like, this actress is fantastic. Who is she? She's an actress uh, who I believe is named Lisa Summerer. Um, and she was in movies like uh, Mercury Rising, Junior, Philadelphia, um, and I guess really hasn't acted since uh, about 2001 when she was in a Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Bring her back, man. I like her. A couple people didn't like this movie. The Village Voice, I'll start with them. They wrote that it was inflated and polished to an anonymous Disney shine. They said it was a play date in the ghost neighborhood. Wow. <laughs> and then they made fun of the CG breaths, to which one of the people who worked in the film wrote a letter and got mad and said, those are not CG breaths. We did the breasts exactly the way they do the breasts in William Freakin's The Exorcist. They built a cold room, and they were real breasts. He was very wow. touchy about that. I would never have guessed that in a million years. That's a good trivia like question to ask at like, your bar night because that looked so CGI to me. He claims it's real. He All right. claims that it is real. He said the only CG in the entire movie is the hanging corpses in the hallway. Okay, wow. Yeah. Interesting. And here's another negative review. This one comes from the New York Times. They write that they're giving it this year's Touched by an Angel Award for Whoa. gaggingly mawkish supernatural kitsch. It goes to Bruce Willis's new film, The Sixth Sense. The star, who plays Dr. Malcolm Crow, is a gifted child psychologist in Philadelphia, also earns the Robin Williams Award for ineffable, twinkling, half-smiling, misty-eyed empathy with adorable tots. Wow. And he agrees with me. He says, since Mr. Willis has only one basic facial expression in all of his films, it isn't his icky smirk that telegraphs the doctor's extra special sensitivity. Mr. Willis wears exactly the same smirk when he's about to shoot someone in the face. And this review gives special insults to the movie's treacly soundtrack by James Newton Howard, the Hollywood maestro du jour, for smearing on goo whenever it is time to clench back tears. Wow. Um, I will say the soundtrack didn't bother me that much except for one moment. Mm -hmm. And it really annoys me in this one moment. And that is the stuttering Stanley moment. This is when Haley Joel Osment gets mad at his teacher because his teacher is saying that no people were definitely not hung in that school when Haley is like, yes, they definitely were. He gets mad. You get these clues that I think this is really the first time when you understand that Haley knows more than Haley should know about people. He knows more about this teacher than he should know. But then the score just drives me insane. I don't like people looking at me like that. Like what? Stop it. I, uh, I, I don't know how else to look. I... You're a stuttering Stanley. Excuse me? You talked funny when you went to school here. You talked funny all the way to high school. What? You shouldn't look at people. It makes them feel bad. How did you... Stop looking at me! Who have you been speaking stuttering to? Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! Well, that to me is the equivalent <laughs> of exactly what we talked about, this idea of the camera angles. It, it's an over-the-top kind of horror-y move that it just – it kind of cheapens the whole thing in my opinion. Yeah, it only pops because he's so good at not doing it. Yes. Every other minute. Every other minute. And so I think you, you realize that the restraint here is what makes this movie so good. <laughs> By the way – one last thing on M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. Uh, somebody asked him if he had a therapist uh, oh during the press of this movie, and he said, I see therapists, but I don't talk to any of them. 
Oh, what the <laughs> worst. Don't make me hate this guy. Oh, I just like him. I like him for being who he is. I do too. Um, here we go, Amy. It wouldn't be an episode of Unspooled without this. It's time for some Year Facts. Year Facts. All right, this movie came out in 1999. A lot of fun things in 1999. Uh, Billy the Big Mouth Bass. That was the uh, big toy of the year. That was like a, a fish that you put up on the wall that would like turn its head and start singing a song okay. when you would walk into the room. Remember that? Yeah, I think my uncle had one. I mean, it was the best thing you could possibly get. Um, there, the top song was Smooth by Santana with Rob Thomas. Still is. Uh, and uh, another really fun thing here. In 1999, there was an actor strike, which prevented using actors in advertising. So that is how the Geico Gecko was born, because they couldn't have a real actor in it. So that's how this kind of famous character came to be. Wow, I didn't know that. I, I will say 1999... That Oscar race is maybe my most least favorite Oscar race well, it, that I always get mad at. The which su- one is it? The supporting actor race, which Haley Joel Osment was in. Mm-hmm. Um, so too was Tom Cruise for Magnolia. Also deserved right. to win. Oh, I would amazing. say deserved yeah. to win number one. Uh, Jude Law was in that race. I Ripley? would say for Ripley. Also should have won. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. there could be many people winning, sure. those two people, definitely. Uh, Michael Clark Duncan was in it for The Green oh, Mile. Wow. Hi, Shawshank. Yeah. What's up? What's up? Redoing that. Uh, but Michael Caine ends up taking it for The Cider House Rules, which is oh, I was like, really? Yeah. Out of that five contender category list. That's, yeah, it's a weird one. Because maybe the vote got split. A lot of good performances. I think that's what happens sometimes when there's great performances. You The the out, the out dark horse gets a, a chance there. But it was like, I have held a grudge against Michael Caine for winning this for so long, which is not fair because I love him. I love him in Joss 4. Sure. I love him in a lot of stuff. So preparing for this episode, I went and I watched his Oscar speech, and it softened me on him. It softened me on this one. You have Michael, who I'd never heard of, quite frankly, who is astonishing. You have Jude, who's going to be a big star no matter what happens. You have Tom, who, if you had won this, your pot price would have gone down so fast. (laughs) Have you any idea what supporting actors get paid? (laughs) And Hallie Osmond, what an astonishing... Where are... Where is he? When I saw you, I thought, well, that's me out of it. A very classy move there. Also, if we're talking about awards, this movie has a rare distinction, which is um, only five horror films have ever gotten uh, Oscar nominations. Uh, The Exorcist, Jaws, Silence of the Lambs, and Black Swan, and Sixth Sense. That's, That's it. And of course, now, Get Out. And Black Swan's even negligible in calling it a horror movie, I think. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. Like, that's the only, like, horror films that have gotten Best Picture nominations. God. We, I hope that this changes. I really like horror films. I like that we're having these conversations about yeah. The Exorcist being up here. I mean, I feel like The Exorcist should maybe be on the list above The Sixth Sense, honestly, instead of not being on the list at all. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, they both know. definitely have had an impact on culture. I think it's an interesting movie here because I think the idea is to hate on this movie as any new movie is on this list. I was like, are we going to come across all these movies that came out in the 90s and be like, nah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but, is it that thing where we're almost too close to it? Yeah. You know, the way people felt about Titanic, the way I feel about Shawshank, the way even M. Night Shyamalan feels about Forrest Gump. Did you know that M. Night Shyamalan... His insult for the type of audiences who like the type of films he doesn't want to make is he calls them the gumps. Oh, boy. Oh, man, this guy. (laughs) Uh, I just want to give you two more interesting facts from 1999. Um, Besides the fact that Susan Lucci won her first Daytime Emmy after 19 nominations, it was also the year 
that uh, Billy Mitchell got Pac-Man's perfect score, the much-contested perfect score. Didn't they just say this year that they are certain he cheated? Yes. I mean, that's what's going on right now if you're following anything. How and is this drama going on so long? It's been 19 we years. We gotta get... They look, if... Uh, <laughs> wait, I wait, wanna look uh, at this on a timeline. Is the amount of time we've been fighting over this score longer than the time that that game had existed to when this game even happened? Look, to when the game was invented? Look, it's gonna be like the Mueller investigation. We gotta go. We gotta investigate every lead before we can make a conclusion on it. Um, <laughs> if the Mueller investigation Last 19 years, I would yeah, die. No, I know. Just, oh, yeah. It's like, and if you're looking for the big movies at 99, we got Phantom Menace taking the top spot, second spot, Sixth Sense, Toy Story 2, Austin Powers 2, The Matrix, Tarzan, Big Daddy, The Mummy, Runaway Bride, and of course, another classic horror, The Blair Witch Project. Yeah, The Sixth Sense made so much money. People were just staring at it as it was climbing up in the, in the box office, being like, oh my God, it just knocked like Jaws out of the top spot. Then it knocks Empire Strikes back off the list, and then it actually makes more money than Home Alone. It, they were watching this movie like it was a racehorse in the all-time box office rankings, which, you know, that dude who got fired for buying it yeah. shouldn't have gotten fired. No way. Keep that guy hired. Amy, we've talked about a lot of things, but the question we have not asked yet is, and I know there's got to be one, is there a Simpsons clip? Why, yes, there is a Simpsons a really recent one, actually. It's from last year. It's called Flanders Ladder. It's actually one of the worst-reviewed Simpsons online when I was looking up <laughs> for more information about it. But Bart is in a coma. Yes, he sees dead people. And yes, he even has a therapist. So this movie is 89 on the AFI Top 100 list. Forrest Gump is 76, just if we're having that conversation. Yeah, no, it's a good conversation to have. I think it's a little too low, honestly. Yeah, I do. I think that this movie is an expertly crafted, fun thriller that has made an impact on our culture um, that I think has started a lot of imitators. I don't know. I, I think that this is, based on what we've seen so far, it is a little low for me. Huh. Based on, okay, based on what we've seen so far. That's, what, that's so the far. only way I can judge it, is yeah. based on what we've seen so far. Because I don't know what's in front of us. I only know what's behind us. Right. And uh, what's right behind it on the list is swing time. Swing time is 90. Okay, yeah. I'm okay with it being at 89. Okay. I don't know if I need to move it up any higher. But based on what we've seen so far, I would I put it above French Connection? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would. Um, definitely below Titanic. A lot below Titanic. Well, like Titanic is like your number one. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's one of those movies that really works in rewatchability, and I think it's timeless. I don't think that you need to be of the 90s to get this movie. There's nothing that distinguishes this movie as uh, any time period, I think. It Except just for feel- those handicams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, that's like, I think that those are kind of defining features on what films kind of last for a long time. That's true. I'm very curious how this movie will play in 10 years from now, even 20 years from now. It could be one of those things that bumps up in our estimation, which does happen all the time on this list. Yeah. All right. Well, you feeling lucky, Paul? I am. Should I roll these dice right here? I cannot wait. What do you got? All right. Little giant die. Whoa. Uh, Whoa, it hit my glass. Uh, And it landed on 52. Ooh. Taxi Driver? Ooh. Taxi Driver. I like it. All right, I'm very excited to watch Taxi Driver. I believe I've seen Taxi Driver. 
I'm not sure. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure at all because it's one of those movies there. I feel like I understand like the meme, like, you know, you talking to me, you talking to me, but I don't know if I understand what the movie is about. This will be interesting for me if I remember any scene from that movie. Okay, well then here's a test. I don't know if you're a person like me who has a sense memory, mm -hmm. but if you ask me like, what did a thing smell like? I can usually try to remember actually what oh, happened wow. in the day. I have a very bad memory, but I remember like smells. Okay. So I want people to use their imagination out there. What do you think Travis Bickle's cab smells like? I mean, do you think it smells like pine? Do you think it smells like new car smell? Do you think it smells like sweet cherry? Or do you think it smells like something that you can't buy on a little tree? Well, remember, it's also the 70s. Uh, so work that into the equation. Dracar Noir. That's 80s. <laughs> All right. We cannot wait to hear your phone call. Give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. All right. We'll see you next week for Taxi, Taxi Driver. Driver.